Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between. With your host, Barry Kirby. Welcome to this month's 1202 Human Factors Podcast. A lot of the podcasts that we've done over the uh, of, of the past series so far have all been around either directly involved or indirectly uh, adjacent to um, the the field of human factors and how we how we engage with people this it this uh, interview is taking us on a slight divergent but absolutely relevant part uh, in in the way that we now did deal with um, not only the digital space but our own representations in the digital space and I'm absolutely delighted to have a, a good friend of mine and um, the basically the person to go to around this topic uh, David Burden David welcome yeah good afternoon um, really great to have you on and what we want to talk about is all of the work that you've done around virtual humans that's virtual representation um, and a lot of the issues that are associated with that but before we get to that um, if I could ask you, you know, what is it you actually do at the moment? What what is it you um, what what keeps your day to day life enthralled? Right, so I'm managing director at Dayton Limited. Uh, this company has been going since 2004, and pretty much for all that time, all we've done is either working within the chatbot and the virtual human space, or working within virtual environments, what's nowadays called virtual reality, uh, developing training and simulation exercises for clients. Cool. And you've done an awful lot of, um, well, massive variety of work, because we've had the, um, the pleasure of working with you on a, on a couple of projects as well, um, around different types of representation. So you um, you mapped out uh, Birmingham and did some work around, re uh, was it Twitter representation? Um, That's right, yeah. well, One of the things we got quite interested in uh, was about how you visualise data within a 3D space. Uh, so actually, the nice thing about a 3D space is you can use obviously X and Y uh, to represent latitude and longitude so as to map out a city in a conventional way uh, but then you can then take the vertical dimension and then use that to represent absolutely anything and so what we found was quite interesting was using it to to bring in social media information like twitter and then use the vertical dimension to represent time uh, and just by looking at the patterns of the dots effectively uh, it told you all sorts of stories about what was going on in the city so I can see that being a we'd have to drag you back at some some time and and talk around that because there's a whole lot of um, really interesting piece around that but and it's it's very contemporary as well because we're still using social media and the use of it is expanding at a massive rate. The way you could use that sort of I mean what's going on in America um, fairly recently we could use that sort of information um, um, rather intelligently I think. It's also what was interesting is that actually your office was the first time I got to use an Oculus Rift. Um, which was a complete blow away thing. And, um, but considering that I know how much you paid for it then, but just over a couple of months ago, we picked up a, an Oculus Quest 2 for, you know, comparatively peanuts. It's a couple hundred quid. Um, and you can sort of see, but you see the translation of it. It's fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the Quest. I think it's a really nice device. And I think they've, they've really, I mean, in human factors terms, I think they've really thought through how, to, how you use it as a user. Mm. And particularly that ability to switch from the virtual view to the real world view and the ability to map out where your safe zone is um, in the real world view before you then switch back. And then the ability for it to automatically bring you back into the real world view as you stray out of your safe zone. They've mm. really thought about sort of how do you use this device safe, safely? No, they have. And then my next um, thing is to I've got, got an, a haptic vest to uh, stitch it up to and um, so, so we can then get into that experience so again well, I, I stray off the topic massively um 
But let's talk, get back to you then. You haven't always been uh, managing director of Dayton. You started off in the military. Yeah, I, so. I, I went to university um, on a, uh, I think it was called a bursary in those days. Um, did my degree in electrical engineering at Imperial, uh, attending OTC whilst I was there. Um, and then went into Royal Signals in 1982. Uh, spent about 10 years uh, as Royal Signals officer, uh, doing some really good jobs, having a really fun time. A lot of it in Germany, but also in Northern Ireland, in the Caribbean. Um, learned an awful lot about managing people um, and about using, using technology. Um, and then got the child, uh, well, decided, essentially when I got married, it was the right time to get out. Um, <laughs> And so came out, moved to Birmingham, and eventually uh, ended up working for Seven Trent, and spent again about 15 years probably uh, with the Seven Trent organisation, but on the technology side. Um, and in fact, I ended up as the marketing director of their IT company, uh, selling billing systems across the globe, uh, which was good fun. Um, clients in Australia, clients in the States, clients in the Caribbean. Um, and then got the chance in 2004 to take the early bath uh, when Seven Trent decided it wanted to focus on water rather than IT. Um, and that's when I, I set up Dayton. And I think from, from the very beginning, you know, what I wanted to do was, was explore interesting technologies. Yeah. Um, and as I said, you know, the two of those technologies that we alighted on almost immediately were, were chatbots, um, which is sort of grown into the virtual humans work. Um, and then what was then Second Life? Um, and using immersive 3D environments for training. Uh, and obviously that, that's grown through into the modern virtual reality, virtual reality activities. Because you've still got um, some of your products available, like sort of Datascape and things like, like that, haven't you? So pe people want to go along to your, um, uh, to dane.co.uk, they can see a lot of the work and the case studies of the type of things you've been working on. Yeah, so, so on the data visualization piece, there's all of the case studies there and links through to, to video walkthroughs. We tend to do everything on our training scapes platform nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, where we can both both visualise data and and also sort of let people author uh, their own VR experiences. But, I mean that that's one of our big issues. I think with with the current trend in in VR type activity, well, in fact, there's two big issues. Um, I mean the the first is actually what the benefit is of putting a headset on as against not putting a headset on. Yeah. Um, having that first person shooter experience because actually for a lot of situations that's actually better. Uh, than putting a headset on. Um, but the second one is actually this stuff is only going to really take off once people can create their own exercises. You know, at the moment, you know, if you want to create a PowerPoint, you nowadays you do it yourselves. You don't send it out to a design agency. Um, and realistically, it's going to be the same um, in, in the VR space. You need effectively the VR equivalent of something like Articulate. Um, and that's very much what we've tried to build with training scapes. Cool. Okay. Right. I'll get, I keep on veering off. I'll get us back onto the main topic. So, what you've um, very kindly agreed to talk about is your work around virtual humans. To start us off, then, what is a virtual human? Um, I would say, most broadly, I'd say I'd define it as, as being a software program that, that tries to represent itself uh, to some extent as a, as a human. Um, okay. So, you know, a spreadsheet isn't trying to represent itself as a human, so that, that doesn't count. Um, but a chatbot is trying to typically represent itself as being a human. Um, now, obviously, the degree to which it does that um, can vary quite immensely. And, and chat, natural language, is just the most obvious element in which it might portray itself as human. Um, it could just be actually just, just, just the look of it. Um, so, obviously, the visualisation of, of, of the avatar. Um, it could also be in terms of things like empathy um, and showing emotion. So, there's a lot of different ways in which it could, could portray itself as, as being human. 
Um, and to us, a virtual human is, is a, an application that is doing that. But I think also probably a little bit more, it's about an, an application which has the concept of something like self. So it's something that is also or a level of autonomy. Um, because if all you're doing is creating a, a, a nice looking 3D avatar uh, to be filmed in a Pixar movie, um, to us, that, that's more of, of what tends to be called sometimes a digital human yeah. rather than a virtual human, uh, because that's just a human represented in bits. Uh, whereas to us, a virtual human, there's something about autonomy to it as well. So it's obviously a massive, um, massive field, really, because as you just demonstrated, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of areas. You could even if you just picked off one, one or two bits at a time, there's got there's going to be a whole lot of stuff to investigate. How did you first get interested in it? I mean, why why bite off any bit at all? Um I suppose just from a general interest as, as interest in technology and, and in science fiction. Um, and I think that I first came across them probably in the very early days of, of the web. Um, so in about would have been uh, what, mid 19, uh, yeah, 1990s, is it? I remember where the web was now. Um, yeah, the mid, mid sort of 90, yeah, mid, mid 1990s. Um, and whilst I'd always dabbled in programming, I think uh, I, I I always found the challenge was how do you, once you've written a program, how do you get it out there? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was back in the old days of distributing 3.5 inch floppy disks around the place. <laughs> um, but also the nice thing about the internet was obviously you could write a bit of, of, of something and sit instantly, make it available to people. Um, and that sort of led me quite quickly to, to the nascent sort of chatbot community that was out there using AIML, um, artificial intelligence markup language, um, and bots like Alice. And, and suddenly yeah. discovering actually, you know, I could write this AIML stuff myself. Um, and th so that got me started. But then I think the thing that then moved it on quite a pace was then, as I mentioned earlier on, we did a lot of our early life inside of the Second Life virtual world. Yeah. And the nice thing about the Second Life virtual world is I could quite easily create an avatar inside that world that was then driven by the chatbot software. And of course, because Second Life, everybody is an avatar. As you walked around Second Life, if you came across this chatbot, you couldn't tell by looking at it that it was being driven by a computer uh, rather than by a human and you actually had to start talking to it right and actually you started from the assumption this was actually a human rather than the assumption that this was a chatbot and so actually the whole sort of psychology of that interaction became quite different you are listening to 1202 the human factors podcast we wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support you can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. So how important is um, AI to all of this? Because a lot of people um, associate artificial intelligence with sort of the digital human aspect or the, um, the virtual human aspect. But they're not synonymous, are they? They're not exact. They're not the same thing. But no, not at all. No, I mean, we, we've got a, a two by two sort of matrix or a two dimensional matrix we use quite often. Um, and one of those axes is about the complexity of the code that's driving a system. Um, and most, you know, normally when people talk about AI, what they're really talking about is machine learning and neural networks, which is sort of a, of a moderate complexity, let's let us say, mm. um, in terms of where, what the scales are that we've got on this thing. Um, and beyond that is into the realms of things like artificial general intelligence, which we're still nowhere close to. But the other dimension on, on it is, is about is about this this issue about humanness 
and how human is it is it representing itself in terms of, it, of its capabilities in language or its look um, or its behaviors or its emotion um, and actually you know some of the work we've done shows that uh, most of your listeners are probably familiar with this thing called the Turing test about sort of can you uh, get to a situation where somebody is having two conversations on two computers one with a computer one with a human that they can they tell which is which effectively is what the Turing test is all about. Right. Um, okay. And it's never been consistently passed um, sort of in, 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 in contemporary sort of technology. Uh, but what we said is using these virtual environments is, is well, let's just change the name of the game and, and let's just not tell anybody they're taking part in the Turing test. Let's just put them into an environment where they may be talking to a person or they may be talking to a computer, but we don't tell them till afterwards. And we were actually able to pass the Turing test in that situation with some incredibly basic um, rule-based chatbots. So we didn't wow. need AI in order to be able to do that. We just need to be very clever, basically, with the way we crafted it. Um, so whilst AI, in the machine learning sense, is a, you know, to us, it's just a tool to be used. The important thing is, is you know, particularly with, with typically delivering virtual humans, is what is that, that um, what is it you're trying to portray effectively yeah. um, in terms of the interaction with the real human? Um, and what's the best tool to do that? So can you, um, obviously, the, I know you do work for a wide range of, of, of clients on this, but can you give us a, an idea about what sort of projects you've been you've been involved with in looking at this so far? Yeah, um, I mean, there, there's probably three or four sort of broad categories um, that we see sort of virtual humans being used in and, and our projects sort of reflecting that. Um, I mean, the most simple and the one we've actually done least on is, is what you might call just the ordinary virtual assistant type role. Um, so the series of this world, um, because obviously you've got a lot of big players playing around that. And a lot of that is just about giving you access to information. It doesn't okay. need to get into a particularly extended uh, conversation with you. So the focus there is very much on, on the quality of the natural language interface. Um, a second area we've, we've, we've worked around is, is looking at the idea of virtual tutors. Um, so how can you create a bot which can actually help to deliver content um, and maybe work alongside sort of traditional uh, sort of e-learning content, slideshow content, um, and actually work with the student, develop a rapport, identify when the student's struggling, potentially have different ways in which this, it can talk the student through, through um, uh, different options and different approaches. Um, we've done quite a bit of work around what we call virtual life coach um, or a virtual mentor, where you actually have a bot which is there, it's, it's, it's not quite a, a, a virtual assistant on steroids. It's got a slightly different aim. It's not to give you access to all the information, but it's to support you through sort of the day-to-day -day frictions of life. Um, so you've got bots out there um, like sort of, uh, um, what is it, Wise and Wobot, uh, which are there as sort of almost like virtual counseling bots. But the problem people find, uh, I'm talking to, to the companies themselves as well, is that, is that people have an immediate hit of using this stuff, but often after a couple of weeks, they just get bored with it. Yeah. Um, and the only time they're talking to it is sort of when they, they feel they want help. Whereas actually what we say is what you want a bot is a bot that's got that day-to-day -day virtual assistant type role. So it's there almost on a daily basis, just helping you with the trivial stuff. But it's also in such a position, in a position that actually can ask you, you know, how stressed are you feeling at the moment? Or did you sleep well last night? And so it can actually then offer the support and signpost you to the support to, to deal with those sorts of issues really before they, they become too acute. Um, so we think there's, a, there's an interesting role there. Um, and the, but the really big one for, for me personally, I think, um, is this around the idea of a virtual persona, uh, which is where saying actually one of the big issues that organisations have is, is around corporate knowledge management. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons for that is that is so much information is, is tacit knowledge. It's, it's up in people's brains and it's and it's rarely extracted. Um, but actually, what would happen if we could actually create a virtual persona that was a copy of that person that could actually suck the information out of them, basically, and make that information available 24-7? You know, if they leave the company or they get posted somewhere else um, or they retire, let, you know, could we make that information available just as though you were talking to the person? And we often talk about it as having the past on speed dial, basically. Yeah, uh, yeah. Being able to dial up the person who had the role before you say, oh, actually, you guys work with David. You know, what were they like? You know, what do you think of David? You know, what, what do they do well? Um, and, and what you get back is, is a very human discussion rather than just the facts um, about what it was like to actually work with that, that organisation or that technology or on that project. So that does lead us into, into quite nicely into it's not all roses, is it? There are it, there's almost a minefield out there of issues um, associated with this. Um, what are the I guess the big hitters that you found at the moment that maybe we need to consider before fully embracing uh, the future of our of, of our virtual human selves. Yeah, I, as you say, I was, the, 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 one of the interesting things about doing projects in this area is, is it does surface these issues. And the nice thing is you don't need sort of this massively advanced sort of AI type technologies to surface the issues um, and, and just using relatively basic technologies, but trying to do the task um, is, is, is what leads you on to, to thinking about these things. I mean, I mean, the most obvious one is, is around the, the privacy of the information mm-hmm. um, and the extent to which the minute that information leaves your head and goes into a computer system, then obviously it starts to be, um, you know, the target of all sorts of, of, of privacy law, uh, data protection law, GDPR, all of those sorts of things begin to need to be considered about how you protect that information. And what access do you give different people to that information? And what access do they get by rights? Forget what you decide. Um, and, and so that, that sort of ethical and, and, and data privacy issue, um, you know, is, is, is quite huge. And, and one of the things that we've done in response to that is actually begin to look at what is the role for these sorts of personas beyond that of the individual person? Mm-hmm. Because the minute you make it, actually, it's the persona of, of a whole project or potentially the persona of, say, a ship or a hospital, then they, all the issues don't go away by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but certainly those ones about, well, this is one particular person's viewpoint, yeah. uh, you know, that begins to become less of an issue. But you've still got the fact that you've got potentially, uh, you know, very sensitive information about different people uh, and very personal information about different people or views of those people being stored on the system uh, that could make it an, all, an almighty challenge. So I think that there, there's certainly a big issue around how you manage that information. But bear in mind, to a certain extent, this is only the same information as you, as you would like to bring into your more conventional data, you know, customer relationships yeah, yeah. and CRM systems. Um, so in, in some ways, it's, it's, it's not a different type of information, um, but it's just being stored potentially in a, a more efficient way, I think, is, is, is where, where some of the big issues come up. The second big one for us that sort of leads on from that um, is, you know, as we started building the virtual persona, um, and within that persona, we were certainly the original research project, we were trying to look as well as the, uh, the, the natural language side. We were looking at what a person looked like. We were looking at, at what they sound like. So we were looking at voice font technology. And there's been some interesting programs on TV in the last sort of six months looking at how that sort of voice font technology is coming on to deal with people who are losing their voices for medical reasons. Um, the, 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 the avatar, the, the whole sort of deep fake movement, obviously, is improving the ability to create realistic avatars of people. Um, so those sorts of technologies are moving moving quite swiftly. Um, but in terms of actually what we were putting into the bot, 
but as I say, as well as trying to capture factual information, we're also trying to capture sort of reminiscences. Um, and, you know, well, when you met, you know, anecdotes, basically, of when yeah. you met this person or that person. So a lot of the personality of, of, of the individual shines through in those anecdotes. Um, and so that, I mean, that led us to think about, well, actually, what happens if this person gets hit by a bus tomorrow? You know, the reason we're doing this is, is that so if that happens, the organisation doesn't lose access to that, that person. Um, but what about their next of kin? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, 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 if the person gets run over, you know, can their husband say, well, actually, you know, I, I, I would like that copy of my wife, please. Um, or I'd like a children <laughs> have a copy of, of, of my wife, please. And it's interesting. There's actually a book called The Afterwife that goes into some of this. Um, but, we, you know, we had this immediately facing us in that we had a, a copy of a person um, that looked like them, sort of sounded like them. Certainly in terms of the words it was used, it was the words of that real person. And it included reminiscences. And it may be even reminiscences that the you know the partner doesn't doesn't even know about because they were sort yeah. of just a, a trivial part of day to day life, but it was very much them. Um, and so actually, I mean, that's led us to, to collaborating on an entire book around the topic of the digital afterlife. So looking at this issue about digital immortality and thinking, well, actually, as, as the technology improves and it doesn't need to improve much, um, then you know where will this lead us? And it's interesting that there are already three or four websites which purport to actually build chatbots as part of a, a virtual legacy right. uh, package. So alongside your virtual wills and your, your uh, emails to be sent after death, you know, they have that ability to build a chatbot. Now, the ones we've seen so far, we don't think are particularly good. Um, and, and we don't think are sort of at the level we were getting, getting to with virtual personas. Um, but over the next decade, you can certainly see all that coming together. This podcast is supported by K-Sharp, the human science research and human factors consultancy. If you want to know how innovating in the relationship between humans and technology can add value to your business, product, or research, then visit www.ksharp.co.uk. So there's going to be some huge elements around, you know, where, what what happens to your digital legacy, and if this is if so if if somebody's having a, a chatbot made about them after they die, I mean, is that right? You know, it's uh, or do you do you need to, do you need to give permission in your will to make it? Ha- I don't know. It's 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 massive, isn't it? Yeah, and, and very much so. You know, in in some ways, you could almost look at the at the, the 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 virtual persona as being the guardian of your will. You know, who better to enforce your will than actually a copy of yourself? Oh wow, um, that's deep. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I, what's interesting is, is, is when, I, when I talk to, have done lectures on this. Uh, one of the things we often do is we, we ask students, um, how much would they like a, a digital persona of themselves to be created, you know, for, for, to exist after death? And actually, you know, you you get a, a bit of a sort of a bathtub curve, if you like. There's a lot of people who are dead set against it. Mm. A lot of people who think, yeah, actually, that sounds really neat. And actually, not that many people in the middle. Um, yeah. What's more interesting, though, is if you then ask the question, would you like your your nearest and dearest to create a virtual person of themselves to live on after their death? Most people are against it. Oh, really? OK. So they like the idea of being able to persist themselves after death, but they're less less keen on the idea of being nagged off beyond the grave <laughs> uh, by their nearest and dearest. So, so, there's, so there's some interesting issues there about you know, what the motivations for this are. And, and if the motivation is is purely there to, as a, uh, yeah, to, not to nag others, but to, to continue what you were doing in a, a very much in a, a, a family context, then I can see that it's going to be more problematic. 
Um, but I think what is interesting is, is if you look at it potentially from, I mean, we, we talk in, in, in the book about the difference between active and passive um, sort of digital afterlife. And, and so the passive digital afterlife is that, that situation where you've got the chatbot, which people can go and talk to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, what, what would dad have said about this? Or well, hang on, what was it dad remembered from the war or from COVID? Um, and you could go and talk to the bot and you'd get the responses back. Um, whereas an active digital afterlife is, is actually what happens if you begin to give that that virtual human agency. Um, so, again, back to, you know, what happens to the will? Well, actually, what happens if you left all your money to, to that, that virtual human? And let the virtual human decide what it wanted to do with it. So if it wanted to further your business interests, further your social interests, um, and, and look at, at basically ways of, of basically continuing your legacy from beyond the grave, but very much as you doing it rather than through the family. So, you know, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful territory <laughs> to begin, get into when you start talking about that. But it is, you know, for us, I mean, that, that, that ultimately potentially might be the most interesting one is, is what happens when these these virtual humans um, very much become entities in their own right beyond the grave rather than just being some that's, that's there to be referred to by the family. Right. Okay. So we talked a lot about, I guess, the um, the bigger issues surrounding it, but uh, the technology still got um, a way to go, I guess, um, before we can fulfill the full potential. Um, where do you see um, the sort of developments going? Where Where's the, I guess, where's the money going to be spent? Where Where's people's interest going to be at? Yeah, I, I think in terms of saying, in terms of things like, like the, the, the look of an avatar, you know, that Hollywood's sorting that out. Um, mm. The fake community, we don't need to worry about too much about that. Voice fonts are being dealt with quite nicely, say, by, by the medical community, sort of driving those forward. Um, I mean, the two areas that, that we're particularly interested in, um, one is the natural language side. Um, and, you know, to, to us, a lot of the machine learning stuff, whilst it's incredibly powerful, it's still, we don't think it's going to be the ultimate solution to this. We think you've got to have stuff that actually really understands grammar um, okay. in the way that a human understands grammar. Um, even if you don't sort of, uh, uh, you know, know, know that you know it, if you like. Um, but you need a system that really understands the words and the context of those words that are being spoken um, in order to achieve um, the, the, the sort of level of, of natural language that we need. And also what we found is typically whilst natural Natural language process, uh, natural language recognition, um, is actually e- is a lot easier than natural language generation. And actually, how you take a bunch of facts and turn those facts into something that sounds like fluid di- uh, discourse is a real challenge. Um, and despite the stuff we've seen, you know, recently um, that's, that's going on with uh, forget the name of the system, um, it's gone. Um, but but yeah, there, there's a lot of, of, of use at the moment around natural language in order to generate. Uh, what appears to be decent looking text right but a lot of people when you really look at it it doesn't really know what it's spouting you know, right. it's, okay. it's, it's yeah. sort of makes sense on the surface but if you dive down it really doesn't make a lot of sense yeah. um so you know there's a bit of a, a dead end there we think um but again you need something that really understands the grammar of how and also the intent so what is it you're trying to achieve are you trying to persuade are you trying to entice um are you trying to encourage uh, are you trying to seduce and then, you know, the, the language that you use off the same facts will be different for each of those. Yeah. Um, so you need a system that does that. The second area that, that we've been really interested in is, is around knowledge graphs. So how do we represent the knowledge that's inside the virtual human? Um, and for us, knowledge graphs appear to be the right way forward, which is where you've got everything is represented at this very atomic level of subject, predicate and object. So chair made of wood or chair made of steel. Um, and each of those those triples is then just connected in this vast this vast web, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, 
of all the things it knows about and all the connections between all the things it knows about. Um, and the nice thing about that is that appears to be fairly close to the way in which the brain stores things, in that the brain has all these different things it knows about and lots of different connectivity. Um, and, you know, the interesting human conversations come from how you spark those connections between things that on the surface you wouldn't think are related, but your brain says, oh, hang on, what about this? And, and brings that into the conversation. Um, and we did some work on, on, on looking at how we use this to drive the natural language discussion. Um, and that was, that was really interesting because what we, whereas most chatbots are question, answer, question, answer, that's not what human conversation is like. Human conversation is more like this, where you ask me a question and I'm still talking five minutes later. Yeah. Um, and we were able to do that with the chatbots. You would ask the chatbot a question, it would go into the knowledge graph, it would find its best answer for that question. But then if you just nodded your head, it would then find an adjacent piece of information and then another adjacent piece of information. And we could actually set parameters about how quickly it moved away from the original subject of the discussion into different areas. You could actually create, you could model if you like, somebody who's very fixated on, you know, I'll just tell you what you want to know and I won't go very much further than that. Or somebody who said, well, actually, you know, let's just have a random conversation. And what you then got is the sort of serendipitous discovery that you get in human conversation where you don't necessarily know the right questions. You, you've got some idea of what information you want off somebody, but you don't yeah. know exactly yeah. what it is. So you ask a question that's in the right area. They start talking. They'll then say something. You say, oh, actually, that was interesting. Can you say a bit more about that, please, Barry? And then that sort of refocuses the conversation. And we were able to do that through this combination of natural language and knowledge graphs. Sounds very much the way I, co I conduct uh, my podcasts. Um, <laughs> I've got to say, this is absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm well aware that really we're just kind of scratching the surface. So if anybody's really, really interested and wants to read more into it, where where can they go? Um, this is an obvious, obvious point to plug your book. I would just point that out. Uh, but um, yeah, so, 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 so Maggie, my co-author and I, uh, we did a book called Virtual Humans. Um, it actually came out in paperback at the end of last year. Um, the easiest way to find out about it is to go to the website, which is virtualhumans.ai. Uh, nice and simple. Um, and that, that's got the, the introduction to the book. It's got a lot of the references. It's got all the pictures that we couldn't, couldn't get into the book for legal reasons um, and, and gives you a really good idea about what the content of the book is. And, and, and we're also trying to keep the, uh, the blog there up to date uh, with sort of new information as we begin to discover, you know, new, new examples of virtual human work uh, and advances in technology. Uh, so, yeah, virtualhumans.ai is by far the best place to go. Brilliant. Now, make sure that there is a, a link to that in the description to this podcast. Um, David, thank you very much. The, that's been an absolutely fascinating insight. Um, obviously, you've been locked down like the rest of us um, through this um, ongoing saga that is that is COVID. Um, how have you found working from home? Have you have you learned anything about yourself whilst? No, I, I don't necessarily. No. I mean, as a business, everybody used to work one to two days a week at home anyway. Um, so, you know, we're quite used to doing that. Um, obviously, you know, you, you miss the, the, the social side of being in the office, particularly miss actually going out to see clients um, mm. and going on site with clients. I think that, that's probably the big thing. Um, but what we have tried to do is, again, sort of eating our own, oh, um, whatever the phrase is, um, making our own shoes. Uh, we, we've actually <laughs> tried to use virtual environments um, so as to actually try and get some of that socialising back. So we've been hold, holding sort of team meetings in different virtual world type environments. So we're on oh, wow. Mozilla Hubs uh, last week. We've used Frames.io, uh, uh, some of which, you know, some, some, some of us in there with virtual VR headsets on, some of us are just using PCs. Um, but it just gives you something that's a, that's a little bit different. You can still bring in your, your PowerPoints and your mind maps and stuff like that. Um, yeah. You can also just, you know, just fly around, have a, have a dinosaur in the corner of the office and things like that. <laughs> um, and it just creates something that's a little bit more interesting than just yet another Zoom call. 
that absolutely it, it makes i think we i've been going on a journey just learning about zoom teams i'm doing way more of this now than um than we have what a year ago um but you're clearly taking it to the next level already david it's been absolutely fascinating thank you ever so much for your time really appreciate it um i hope you you keep safe and i look forward to uh, catching up with you again soon yeah been great to chat, chat to you Barry. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.